0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron-Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Claudia Leal about her wonderful book titled Landscapes of Freedom, Building a Post-Emancipation Society in the Rainforest of Western Colombia, published by the University of Arizona Press in 2018. Bienvenida Claudia, I'm so excited to have you. Thank you Lisette, I'm also very excited. Okay, so this is a very special interview because Claudia was a professor of mine when I was an undergrad, and she was one of the persons that actually inspired me to study history. So I know some of these details, but I want you, Claudia, to start this interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, I know you're a geographer by training, so I would like you to tell us how you came to this discipline in particular and how you ended up forging a project informed both by history and geography.
1: Well, I think I had um, that somehow inbuilt in me um, for a long time. I think being a historian is not just a matter of studying history. I mean, of course, I say that because I teach history without having a degree in history. But I think being a historian is um, a way of thinking, is a way of understanding the world. Um, I came to, so I came to history, I would say, from, from way back when I was in school. But how I ended up combining that with geography has to do with a passion for understanding the environment. I studied economics for my B.A., I was never quite happy about it. I thought about moving to biology, but that was, you know, a bit too late. And after graduating, I started working in a biodiversity conservation project as an economist, uh-huh. um, and that changed my way of of understanding things. I was working on the Pacific Coast of Colombia, which is the region in which I concentrate in this book, and it was I was trying to read everything that I could about the past to understand the situation i was observing and i realized that because the place had been very important in colonial times it was the number one gold producing region of uh, the viceroyalty of new granada in the 18th century and it did so based on slavery so it had it was it had an important economic role in the colony but it also had one of the most important institutions to understand the colonial period so historians looked at this region in the 18th century but then when gold mining declined and slavery ended, historians lost interest. And there was a big gap of almost 200 years in, you know, the most thorough historical studies of of the period. And because I was working in a biodiversity conservation project, I was very attuned to looking at environmental issues. And I realized that if I wanted to understand the Pacific coast of Colombia, I needed not only to do a historical study of those 200 years that that were kind of missing from the historical um, from the historiography but that the environment had a very important place and the discipline that historically has linked society and the environment is geography and so that's why I did a PhD in geography and this was my dissertation and it's both history and geography
0: Great. So I was going to ask you a little bit about Biopacifico, which is actually what you kind of just described, which is a biodiversity strategy that you were part of. So maybe now I can ask you also to describe us the particular geography of the Pacific, of the lowlands that you describe here, because uh, since environmental history is... Like from where you, the place you're speaking from, and since the environment and the geography of this place is so important, um, to your book, uh, maybe you can tell our listeners that maybe are not necessarily familiar with Colombian geography a little bit about the region and and why is it so unique and and what is it that makes it different. So the Pacific Coast is
1: fascinating. Place and very unique, as you say. Some of the listeners here might be acquainted with it by the work of uh, Arturo Escobar, who who also studies this this region. Um, this region is one of the poorest uh, places of uh, of Colombia. It stretches from Ecuador to Panama, although of course it really goes into Panama and into Ecuador. You know, from north to south, but from west to east, it goes from the Pacific Ocean to the uh, Andes mountain uh, that crosses, you know, Colombia from south uh, to north. It's a, it's a coast that it's divided into, into two parts. The south and the north are somewhat different, but they are united by having rainforests. And uh, it's not only a region covered by rainforests, but these are some of the most humid rainforests in the world. Uh, rainfall varies in different places of the region, but it can be four times as much the average rainfall in the Amazon. Some of uh, some parts of the Choco are, if not the rainiest place in the world, it can be the second rainiest place in the world. So this is environmentally a very specific region associated with um, rainforests and incredibly high humidity and rainfall. Uh, it's also a place where most of the population is of black ancestry. Or of African ancestry, uh, with an important indigenous population as well. But you have, you know, about eighty percent of the people, or more, being Afro-descendant. A smaller percentage being uh, indigenous, and then the rest being, you know, mestizo or or white. So that also sets it apart from most of the rest uh, of of Colombia, although not not um, not all. And going back to your Pacifico, those. Two characteristics of having a strong black population and having this, you know, rainforest still being covered by rainforest, although it was completely inhabited, was what turned the country to look to this region that was had had been somewhat marginal throughout the history of the country, and it has to do with the importance of biodiversity as a concept in the 1980s that led to valuing this place as a biodiversity hotspot hot of the country and of the world and the turn to a multicultural society or to redefining Colombian, the Colombian nation as a multicultural society in the constitution of 1991. Because although the multicultural society was based on the idea of the existence of indigenous ethnicities, the constitution also opened a window to consider black people, specifically of the rural areas of the Pacific coast, as ethnic groups as well. So it was this confluence of the beginning of cre- the creation of, of the idea of black ethnicity with the valuing of the forests that had been considered historically you know, a problem rather than an asset uh, that brought me to this place and allowed me to conceive of this particular study.
0: So now that you've given us some context, maybe we can um, dive into one of the main arguments of your book. So according to you, an environmental approach to history, and you just said that already, is essential to understanding the transition from slavery to freedom, a crucial aspect of the building of modern Latin America. So why is environmental history so important? You mentioned that a lot of histories in the region have focused on land. And though you acknowledge the importance of this contribution, you ask us to consider how rainforests shape this experience. Why are rainforests so important and why haven't they been studied as extensively? Well, let me maybe divide this the
1: following way to think about the particular study that I do and how this study can help understand other places that are not necessarily rainforests, but where this transition from slavery to freedom also happened. And in that sense, the fact that this place is covered by rainforest, and it's so humid, allows us to see more clearly the importance of paying attention to the environment, and then when we move to other environments that might not be as striking as this one, you can see that they are also an important analytical tool to understanding the past and the present. In the Pacific Lowlands of Colombia, the kind of slave economy that developed in colonial times revolved around mining most of the work on slave economies and most of the work on the transition from slavery to freedom has been done on plantation economies because plantation economies were very important in Latin America and, you know, about half the slaves work in plantation. So, you know, th- there's a strong reason for that. And in those studies of the transition from slavery to freedom in plantation economies, Academics or researchers have paid particular attention to land, and not only to land. Let me explain. They have showed how slaves and then free people attained higher degrees of freedom by having access to land. As you know, people who have studied this know slaves had the right with plantation economies, and you know this changed a little bit from place to place and from and different periods of time to having their own gardens, to having access to land, to cultivate foodstuffs for themselves, and even to produce some um, surplus that they could sell in the market. And that gave them their own economies within the plantation economies. That gave them their own little spaces within the broader spaces of, uh, of the plantation. And that continued after the end of slavery. And that allowed them for a higher measure of freedom. Rebecca Scott for instance has shown that it was not only a matter that, that this this higher degrees of freedom than hinged on access to land could also be attained by having access for example to an animal to a mule you know as as she writes in one of her uh, very um, useful articles. Having a mule allowed more freedom to people because they had an asset that they could use in different ways, you know, either to gain some money or uh, for transportation or whatever. So having access to land was fundamental to give people a sense of identity, a place where they could actually live, having access to food that they could grow by themselves, having access to food that they could sell and then they could have an extra bit of income, having a place to live different from the places provided, you know, to other slaves or to other free people within plantations. So this became an important way and could make a huge difference from one family to another family, having land or not having land. When we move to what I call an extractive economy, that's an economy that's based on taking resources from the environment very different from agriculture, where you actually have to plant before you can harvest. The important thing here was not having access to land, but having access to minerals. In the case of the Pacific Coast, initially during colonial times was only gold, but afterwards it was gold and platinum. And furthermore, in the 19th century, the extractive economy expanded beyond the subsoil to the forests, And people in the region extracted, especially rubber, black rubber in this case, and uh, vegetable ivory, which is a nut that has very similar material qualities as as ivory and was used mainly to make buttons. So what became very important for initially slaves, but then for, for free black people, to attain higher degrees of freedom, that is, to be able to decide how they were going to use their time, how they were going to use their bodies, was dependent on the access they had to the forests where they could gather um, vegetable ivory, where they could cut the rubber trees to extract the rubber, or to the mines where they could get the gold and the platinum. So here we're moving from the idea of having access to land. Land, which is this abstraction, because when you're talking about land, you really are talking about soils, and it matters what kind of soils. Furthermore, many of these people had access to rivers where they could fish, or had access to forests where they could gather timber for construction, or as energy to cook their meals. So what becomes really interesting in the case of the pacific coast is because it is an extractive economy because what matters is not access to land although of course they also planted foodstuffs but the economy revolved around access to the forests access to the mines and for their own subsistence access to you know little areas of fertile soils access to the rivers access to the oceans where they could fish it's this broader access to the environment that allowed them to subsist and to decide how they were going to live their lives. So if you go back to other economies that are not extractive economies, that are places that are not covered by rainforests, you start realizing in Latin America at this time, you know, the time of the transition from slavery to freedom in the 18th and 19th centuries, most of the region, about three quarters of the region, was covered by rainforests or sorry, by forests, and most of those forests were rainforests. The situation of most of these slaves and ex-slaves afterwards, or descendants of slaves, the way that they could live their lives had a lot to do with the access to those environments, rainforests in some cases, other other environments in, in other cases, that would allow them to have better um, a better situation of living, and in the case of slaves and ex-slaves, higher degrees of freedom. I hope that I have been clear in in, in in answering your question.
0: Yeah, no, you've been super clear. Um, and I guess I, I would like to maybe poke a little bit more on on this concept of a political economy of extraction, right? Because it's so central on, on the book and it's actually one of the sections of the book. So I would like to you to further elaborate this because you say that Black Colombians develop what you called in this region, right? Our rainforest peasantry. So I would like to ask you, and I don't know if I'm kind of in my in my imagination, I'm centering peasants around land and that's one of the issues, but how are these Black Colombians peasants if they're not harvesting land, right? And, and related to that question, how is this concept different from, and I guess you kind of mentioned this, but maybe extractive practices of subsistence and also a concept that you mentioned in the conclusion, which is extractivism. How is economy of extraction different than those things, for example? Okay, that's that's quite a lot of <laughs> questions. So let's, let's go one Sorry. by one. It's fine,
1: fine. The idea of political economy of extraction. What is key here, as I was saying before, is that the region, and I realized that when I was living there, is that the history of the region since the 18th century when the region started producing uh, gold for export, had revolved around the extraction of natural resources. As I've said, mainly gold, and then also platinum, rubber, and vegetable ivory. But if you go on the 20th century, a lot of timber extraction and, well, a, a bunch of other products that I'm not going to go into detail right now. So extraction really has been the backbone the historical backbone of the economy of the Pacific Lowlands of Colombia. When we think about the political economy of extraction, we're talking really about how the broader economy around the extraction of natural resources work. And that includes what kind of products are extracted, which I've already mentioned. But very importantly, it's the way the society is organized for the extraction of those resources. And what you see on the Pacific Coast of Colombia it's an enormous transition in the 19th century from a slave society or for an, a political economy of extraction based on slavery in which you had a few white mine owners and slave owners who for the most part lived outside of the region in cities like Popayana, Popayana and Cali in southwestern Colombia, in the Andean region and not in the Pacific coast, and slaves who initially were African-born, but increasingly, and at the end of the period, mostly born in the region itself, who provided the labor that allowed the extraction of gold. The transition in this political economy of extraction in the 19th century is astounding, because what you have is, instead of having two main social classes, which are, that I will call social classes here, slaves on the one hand, which provided the labor, and slave and mine owners on the other, who reap the profits. what you have is the emergence of what I call, and this starts leading me to answer your second part of the question, a free black peasantry. And I'll go in a second to, to explain why I'm calling them peasants. So what you have instead of slaves are free people, and free people who are working mainly for themselves, Uh, What happens is that these mines get ruined. Uh, They get ruined because most of the gold, the easily accessible gold mined through the technologies that were used in the 18th and 19th centuries had already been mined. Uh, So there was much less mineral to extract. And uh, with the wars of independence, the channels and the reservoirs that were used to Gather the water and transport the water necessary for uh, mining had been ruined, destroyed. So the mines, without their infrastructure and without the slaves themselves, were worthless, and the owners pretty much abandoned them. And the the class that replaced the white slave and mine owners was a local class. So not people who lived outside of the region, but white white with um, with quotation marks. White people who consider themselves whites in opposition to the black people, they started living in some of the ports of the city and they become merchants. So you have you have a, the, the logic of the way this economy functioned changed enormously from black slaves to free black, black peasants to white slave owners who lived outside of the region to white merchants who lived within the region and purchased the products that the black free people produced in whatever way they decided to produce. The way I call these people peasants is twofold. One, because conceptually it works. Conceptually it works because the basis of the concept of peasants is people who have access to the means of production and who produce with family labor. And what you have here. It's black people who have access to the mines, because these were mines that had been abandoned, so they just went and used them. In some cases, they purchased them. In some cases, they rented them. But one way or another, they had access to the mines, and they had access to the forests, which were what we call in Colombia, as you know, baldios de la nación, or public lands. So one way or the other, they had access to these means of production that, I repeat, were not land, but the forests. And, um, and the mines, and they produced these extractive products mainly with family labor. It was not an owner who hired workers as it's typical in a capitalist society. So that's the first reason why I call them peasants. But the second reason is more strategic. Uh, well, for the for the one hand, they called themselves peasants when they started creating their organizations in the 1980s and 1970s. So it's also a way in which Black people self-identified themselves, creating a political identity later on in the 20th century. But more than that, really, analytically, what calling them peasants allows me to do is to compare them or making them part of a broader mass of rural workers, if you wish, throughout Latin America who were also peasants and who could maybe work producing agricultural products. But they don't become the exception of history. They don't become, you know, this weird group that lived in the Pacific coast and that were different from everybody else. They were also peasants, like peasants in Peru, like peasants in different parts of 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 Latin America, and so it allows for comparison and analysis that goes beyond this uh, this particular region. And I call them rainforest peasants to kind of mark their distinctiveness. Now, the last part of your question had to do with extractivism. So, if I use the concept political economy of extraction, extraction is a fundamental concept in the way I built the history of the Pacific coast of Colombia, and it's and it as I hope I've been clear up to now, it serves me to mark, and and this is the key thing, a different kind of relationship to the environment. It is an analytical tool to make the environment more salient in this analysis. What I see is that in Latin America, in the social sciences, in geography and political uh, ecology, more than extraction, what people looking more at the present rather than the past They have been talking about extractivism. And I find extractivism a rather loose concept in general, because extractivism usually uses the idea of extraction that I am using. Often, extractivism is used in the context of mining, or it's used in the context, for example, of uh, rubber. But extractivism really has another dimension, and it's the idea that a certain economy in a certain place extracts the resources. And here the resources can be agricultural products. And the profits of, those, of that economy end up somewhere else. So extractivism is a way, in a way, to denounce an economy that reaps the benefits of that economy from the region that produces it and from the people who provide the labor to produce it. So you're mixing two different things. The first one has to do with a relation to the environment. And the second one has to do with Social justice, if you wish. But by doing that, by using it in that way, one of the things that matters the most to me analytically, which is the relationship to the environment, gets somehow lost or diluted in this double way of understanding the concept. And some historical processes like this one falls through the cracks because it's an extractive economy that does not necessarily work with the idea of extractivism. It might, in the colonial period, but not so clearly in the, in the, um, in the Republican period. And it, and it loses some of its analytical sharpness. Think about the extractive reserves in Amazonia, you know, where you have rainforest peasants who are not necessarily black, who have created, who proposed, along with Chico Mendes, the creation of reserves for people who live off the extraction of rubber, but very important, Brazil nuts, for example. This doesn't work with the idea of extractivism but they themselves have proposed the concept of extraction at the center of what they do. So it's a different way of understanding the concept. Extraction is a different way of thinking and economy than extractivism.
0: Yeah, no, that's super helpful. Thank you. I'm sure our listeners appreciate uh, the distinction. And so now that you've kind of defined and really explained um, the concept of extractive economy, I would like us to, I would, I would like for you to explain to us the second main concept of the book and the second, the basis of the second part of the book, right? Which is racialized landscapes. So, can you tell us what a racialized landscape is and also how you define and utilize and you know, use landscape as a concept because you also kind of define it very specifically and you use it like you, you use your like ge- geography training. So can you tell us what these concepts are? Um, landscape, yeah, that comes straight from
1: my training um, as geographer and from something that I really like and it's the paying careful attention to the materiality of where things happen. And this has to do with the importance of the environment. You know, the environment is real. There are real trees. There's real water. There's real. There's real. Um, there's real um, humidity. But landscape, I, I mean, th- there's a very wide literature on landscape, and there are very different ways of understanding landscapes. So I draw from I, what I would say are the two main ways of understanding landscape. One refers to the material landscape. The actual physical landscape um, that's there, and that has to do, as I was telling you, with the forest, etc. But on the other hand, landscape has been understood in um, geographical literature and also in people who study literature, for example, as a way of seeing, as a way of understanding and looking at the world. And so if you bring these two together, landscape allows you to study. The building of material geographies, but it also allows you to study the way these material geographies have been interpreted and conceived, especially in the period that I am looking at. So what you have after the end of slavery in the Pacific coast of Colombia is that black people, although many of them, most of them actually stay in the mining regions, Many also move outside of the mining regions and colonize or settle better the entire Pacific lowlands, you know, with some exceptions of areas that remain uh, mainly indigenous, uh, indigenous areas. And as they go, they create humanized landscapes. They Mine. They plant crops, etc. They build their houses. They use canoes to go from one place to another. So they they make the landscapes that I came to know when I was working in the region in the 1990s. But that process of um, of getting to know the region was interpreted at the time through a, a, a very strong racialized ideology. You know, as as anyone who has studied late 19th and the first half of the 20th century in Latin America, race was a fundamental concept to understand society. So the people who were writing about the Pacific Lowlands at the time, the people who were witnessing this process of settling of the region were interpreting it through racialized eyes. And race and racialized ideas are strongly hierarchical with, you know, whiteness and whites at the top and blacks and blackness at the bottom. So this really shaped the way that these mostly white or mestizo writers at the time derided on blacks and did not see really and did not recognize their accomplishments. They did not recognize the role they played in achieving their own freedom. This something that we didn't talk about, but the Pacific Coast of Colombia is the place where probably the highest percentage of blacks attained freedom through self-purchase, which is something really extraordinary. Uh, and when they really help push these national ideals uh, of the 19th and 20th century, of you know, humanizing landscape, of creating equality, etc. And these these observers at the time were not seeing and acknowledging this. So that's where racialized
0: landscapes comes into play uh, in the book. So now that we have kind of the two pillars of the book, and now that you've explained the concepts uh, so thoroughly, maybe we can move on to the chapters and kind of talk some about some examples. So just to flag it to our listeners, part one comprised of the first four chapters, analyzes the destructive economy of the region, while part two with two chapters focuses on racialized landscapes. So let's start with part one. Um, I think you've said enough of the colonial period, and though you know I right now focus on the colonial period in my own research, I want us to move to the thrust, right, of your of your book and of, of your argument, right? Because you focus on the transition from slavery to freedom. So let's talk about chapters 2, 3, and 4. Here you analyze Black peasantry, white elites, and some of the conflicts that shaped their relationship in the decades that followed the complete abolition of slavery in 1851. Can you tell us how Blacks experienced freedom? What changed in relationship to the period before how is it that they were able to maintain and ascertain their freedom and autonomy, even in spite of the concession of mining title, titles to uh, mining companies owned by whites or the importation of new mining technologies? How were things experienced in these first decades uh, following the complete abolition of slavery? Okay. This leads me to really flag
1: out the main argument of the book. And the main argument of the book is that in the Pacific coast of Colombia, black people after the abolition of uh, slavery attained probably higher degrees of freedom than black people almost anywhere else in the Americas. And that that is based on the access they had to the means of production and as I've said before means of production really meant access to the wide environment in which they lived, in part for subsistence, in part for I mean, for subsistence, I mean for providing their own needs, that is, materials to make their houses, their canoes, uh, food to eat, etc. Also to the production of commodities that they could sell so that they could get some of the products that they could not produce themselves, such as cloth, machetes, salt, um, etc. Uh, so it was this access to this wide environment that allowed them this pretty extraordinary levels of autonomy perhaps only paralleled by the Maroons of Suriname, uh, which Richard and Sally Price have uh, written about. So the structure of this first part, it starts in the colonial period because it is important to show that freedom does not start magically in 1851 when abolition in Colombia happens. Within slavery, as so many people who have have studied slavery have shown, there were degrees freedom. So I study those degrees of freedom, and I study how people actually attained legal freedom. I guess that one of the important things, and I'm sorry, I'm going back to, to the colonial period, is that that chapter is written mostly based on secondary sources, mostly based on all the works that have been done about the colonial period in the Pacific Coast of Colombia, and they really provide a general overview of slavery in this particular part of the Americas a general overview that did not exist before. And I think that that's something that the book does for the larger works on slavery in, in our continent. But then, as you say, we move to chapters 2, 3, and 4 that explain why, in this particular place and economy, Black people had such a high level of autonomy. So I explain what I was telling just you know, a few minutes ago. The mines were largely abandoned, Black peoples within the mining regions that comprise only a certain part of the broader Pacific coast had access to those mines. The people who retained, the few people who retained, the few white people who retained ownership to the mines, the way that they got a little bit of money out of them was through renting them. And by renting them, they still left black people in charge of production in charge of organizing the production process however they wish, allowing them to work whenever they wanted and in whatever manner they decided to do so. Also choosing which deposits to mine and which deposits not to mine. And we even have examples of the law uh, favoring Black people in this respect whenever they came into clashes with with the mine owners. But often Black people were the mine owners themselves either because they had purchased the mines or or because they were recognized as the owners, even though they didn't have a legal title to the mines. But as I was saying, they also had access to the forests where they could make the two other more important commodities at the time, which were rubber and, and vegetable ivory. And very importantly, they had access really to the very vast environment, that allowed them to provide for their subsistence needs. So they hunted. They hunted uh, rodents. They hunted other animals, some probably to extinction. They, very importantly, could fish. And fish and the collection of mollusks, for example, in the mangrove areas uh, in the southern part of the region were a very important source of uh, food. They had access, as I was saying, to Timber and palm trees, which allowed them to construct their houses and thatch them. They had access to medicinal plants, etc., etc., etc. The environment provided them with, with a bunch of resources that they had to labor, of course, to to get, and they could cover a lot of their needs. And because they could cover a lot of their needs, they could work to gather vegetable ivory, to gather rubber, or to gather gold whenever they wanted, whenever they needed to go to town to buy the very important commodities needed for their survival that they could not produce by themselves. But that really gave them, uh, this access to the environment really gave them uh, a strong basis on which to decide how they were going to live their lives. There's another aspect of this that I really don't uh, go into very much in the, in the book, and it's the way they gave meaning to this environment. The way, not, not to treat it in this very economistic way, but in the way they made this environment their own home, the way they named the different places, the way they gave meaning to all these places. Uh, and that is very important, as you know, for creating community and for creating a sense of belonging and to giving meaning to, to, to your own life. That's, you know, largely chapter two. In chapter three... I look into more detail in the construction or the emergence of a local elite that had never really existed in the region. This region during colonial times had very few whites. To begin with, it did not have cities. It mostly had mining camps, mainly only one little city in the south called uh, Barbacoas. And what really changes is in the 19th century, especially towards the end of the century, you have the emergence of cities. These very small cities this complicated for cities, but cities not less, with a presiding very small white elite. As I was saying, this elite came from some of the old um, slave-owning uh, families, not the very important ones who lived in Cali and Popayan and remained in Cali and Popayan, but some of the ones who were local and were some of the smaller slave-owning families, and especially newcomers. There were newcomers who came from other parts of the world. So you have the example of, you know, one Spanish family, one German family. Uh, very important for the northern part of the country, the arrival of what are called in Latin America, at least in Brazil and also in Colombia, the Turks that were people who came. Uh, from the Ottoman Empire and uh, became merchants and you know, married with uh, with local people and people who came from other cities like Medellin in Colombia. So they created this very small elite. They created commercial houses that would work with importing commodities that uh, local people needed, but very important exporting this um, natural product produced through an extraction process by these black peasants. Now, the the big question that you were asking me is how was their autonomy maintained when there was competition for access to these resources? And in the case of the Pacific Coast, the competition revolved mainly around access to gold. At the beginning of the 20th century, one big company, the Pacifico, the Pacific Mining Company, established itself in the richest mining district. In the coast, uh, which is called uh, Condoto, in the San Juan River Basin, it was the richest, partly because it had a high the, the ores there had a high content of platinum, and platinum prices uh, increased after the the Russian Revolution because Russia was the highest uh, exporter of or producer of platinum in the world at the time. So the the obvious question is, once this very powerful company and I you know tell the story how this company came, came to be, how it amassed mining titles, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but given the fact that they were able to control some of the, most, the the most the richest mines, how is it that I can still say that black people retained a strong level of autonomy? And the question has to do with the broader geography of the region and with technology with the broader geography of the region because Black people lived in Condotto and lived every, everywhere else. So the Choco Pacifico Mining Company settled, operated in one part of the region, but there were Black people in the rest of the region who were not impacted by what happened with, the, with this particular company. But also because even within this region where the company purchased half the lands of the, of the municipality, where it got title or concessions to the rivers and operated these rivers or extracted the, the golden platinum of these rivers uh, with dredges, which were the most important technology for alluvial mining uh, at the time, Black people could still, for example, in the case of the, river, uh, of the rivers themselves, they could still use a technology that they called Zambullidero, and Zambullidero is just diving. They would sit by the dredge, and they would mine the same places that the dredge had been dredging. That is, the the alluvial deposits at the bottom of the of the of the river that had been turned around by the dredge were used by local miners. And the company really couldn't do much. The company went to the courts, protested, and by reading the mining code of Colombia, the judicial system said, "I'm sorry, but the but our mining code says." That local people have the right to mine if they're small miners and just mining for subsistence. And this happened in the most important deposits for this particular company. That would also happen in other, you know, in other deposits in the in the condotto area. So even there, where yes, the company was important, where yes, the company had a strong impact, where yes, the company limited access to some of the deposits people were still able to have access to gold and thus retain levels of autonomy that were pretty important.
0: I, I thought that, that chapter about uh, how they were able to ascertain their autonomy was really fascinating, right? Because as you argue, it wasn't simply that they just could do it, but they f- kind of fought for it too, you know, they had to ascertain their autonomy and they did it in this very specific ways that you, you you just said. So maybe now we can move to the second part of the book, which is the one that in which you analyze racialized land, landscapes and how paradoxically, even if Blacks fulfilled one of the main values of the Republican order of the Colombian national state, which is freedom, they nonetheless were not recognized. And quite to the contrary, were equated to an environment supposedly uh, believed to be unhealthy yet prolific um, and allegedly suitable only for savage beings. And that was just conductive to laziness. In the fifth chapter, you kind of focus on how elites, uh, on the racialized ideas of elites, right, on this ideology. And in the sixth chapter, you actually focus on cities, uh, the cities of Quibdo and Tumaco, and because you said that cities are a very recent phenomenon in this region, I would like to ask you about about cities and how racialized landscapes were also produced in urban spaces. And however, and in spite of whites of whites' most urban wishes, um, urban spaces were still filled with black culture and practices. I was particularly interested in, in your discussion about marimba music in Tumaco. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about these urban spaces and how racialized landscapes were also reproduced there. Well, the,
1: the, this tiny white elite also saw the world through the lens of these two ideologies that you have just mentioned, environmental determinism and, and race, uh, and that's how they interpreted the world in which they lived. They lived surrounded by Black people. They lived you know, with Black people as their neighbors. But they believed that Black people have their place and that their place was largely the forests and that white people could not live properly in the forests, but Black people could. And they strove really hard in the first two decades of the 20th century to turn this towns to turn these ports into proper cities. And uh, they invested whatever personal money they could in their own houses, which helped make these places look more like cities, you know, with, let's say, two-story houses that were more handsome. Uh, But they also invested public funds especially in Tumaco where they had a tax on on tagua and they invested those monies in um on the church on having a better church on having a better plaza on having better streets on protecting the place from the the ocean that was eroding you know part of the city etc cetera, etc cetera. so so there was this very strong desire to live what they considered a civilized life and a civilized life meant an urban life and an urban life had to happen in an urban landscape and they not only uh, strove to transform of course based on the labor of black people uh, the physical landscape but as I was saying the way that you live and that you inhabit or that they inhabited. That That landscape, so they created um you know cultural clubs and they tried to bring people that would have uh, theater performances and they had a strong interest in creating bands that would play proper music and they imported pianos for you know their families to play and etc etc you know so trying to create this urban environment in a broad sense uh for they to live in. But of course, these cities were inhabited primarily by black people. And in the case of Tumaco, one of the most important cultural traits of not only of black people, because the marimba music is shared by a group of, of, we can call them whites, a group of non-black people at the coast who are called culimochos or known as culimochos, uh, and even the indigenous groups uh, that live close to the border with Ecuador, all those people share the marimba, the instrument marimba, and the marimba music. So this music that came largely from the rural areas and very important, that had the marimba itself. You know, it, This is a xylophone, and it was called the xylophone of the jungle because it was made with uh, jungle um, materials. It was made with uh, guadua, I don't know how you say guadua in English, um, bamboo. It was made with bamboo for the resonators and with chonta, which is the heart of uh, some some palm trees uh, for the, God, how do you say teclas? Well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> for, um, for the other part, the important part of the instrument. So this instrument, because it was played largely by Black people and because it was made with trees and palm trees, was really a symbol of the jungle that crept, and more than crept, you could really say dominated the port of Tumaco. And I say dominated the port of Tumaco because this is a pretty small city, and the Marimba parties lasted, you know, the entire night, and sometimes could last more than the entire night, and the sound travels across uh, the city. So the city was invaded by this music that it's Absolutely beautiful, but that even if probably some of these white people who wrote about it at the time maybe enjoyed it, you know, maybe joined those parties every now and then, they understood as contrary to the kind of urban civilized landscape that they were trying to build. And they fought against it, they wrote against it, they said that the music was horrendous. That the singing was uh, savage. They particularly uh, wrote against the way people danced, you know, how they became like crazy jumping up and down. They uh, criticized the entire atmosphere of the parties, you know, where people got drunk and you know, apparently fought with one another, and you know, it could, these parties could end in in violence. And the church helped them, you know. There's a strong history of these priests at the time, not only in Tumaco, but outside of of, uh, Tumaco in the rural areas, doing what they could to end uh, marimba parties. And it was said that whenever a marimba was uh, seen along a river, it was because there was a priest upriver, you know, throwing these marimbas and trying, you know, to, to... to make them disappear. Um, but but it was a lost, a lost fight. It was a lost fight. Marimba music continued and it continued through the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. And then came the 1991 constitution saying that we were a multicultural nation and that black people from the Pacific coast were an ethnic group. And now before you know it, we have the Petronio Álvarez, which is a music festival in Cali that has that celebrates music from the Pacific and has three types of music. And one of those types of music is marimba music. So year after year, you have groups from the Southern Pacific coast and from really everywhere, because now this music has expanded, even to Bogota, uh, in this competition for the best marimba ensemble of the country. So a complete different change of marimba music seen as Black anti-urban and very special and explicitly anti-national to being part of the national soul uh these days.
0: Okay, and I think this leads perfectly to a question I've told our listeners I've been I want to implement in my interviews and is um for you to kind of comment on how this story speaks to the present. And I think you do this very well in the book like in the introduction you Talk a lot about the, the 1991 Constitution, the Law 70, which is uh, very important for kind of establishing, uh, you know, the Blacks of the, of the lowlands in the Pacific as an ethnicity. But maybe you can further elaborate on what you think your story of, of the transition or from slavery to freedom and from an environmental approach. How do you think this story speaks to, to the present? So, yes. You're, you're totally right in that
1: the present, that's now the past, uh, but my present, you know, my, my own life experience informed the way I looked and interpreted this particular past. But what's interesting to answer your question is how the way I've built the story then becomes an important way to understand the very basis of my life experience that allowed me to see the Pacific Coast in the particular way. So let me, let me explain myself. As I had said before, and you were just mentioning now, I got to know the Pacific Coast in the 1990s when two important uh, ways of seeing it had emerged. One, as a very biodiverse, rich, valuable region, important for the country and important for the world. And two, as one of the sites of uh, where the multicultural heart or soul of the nation resided in this this black peasants that that we've been talking about. What this story, what this history tells us, is how what it became possible to imagine, to conceptualize black people as an ethnic group. It is this particular history. Of autonomy. It is this particular history of Black people managing the environment in whatever ways they decided that allowed for the national imagination in the 1980s and especially in the 1990s to use the model of ethnicity, that is, people who live in a particular place and supposedly have their own culture, to take hold and to be used to describe and to understand these particular people. Because had these people become urban proletarians, had these people become the equivalent to the sugarcane workers in Cuba, Puerto Rico, or Brazil, this idea of ethnic group would not have been able to emerge. The most similar way of understanding Black people in Latin America is in Brazil with the quilombos. And the Quilombos are supposed to be maroon communities that survive to this day. Some are maroon communities, some aren't, but that's in a way besides the point. It is the Black people who are peasants. It is the Black people who have access to land and other resources who have been able to be conceptualized as Quilombola communities, just as it's the people who have had access to the environment and who, because of their access to the environment, environment and because of the way they interpreted that environment and made it their home, as I was saying before, could be thought of as an ethnic group. And that is very important because what came after this recognition of Black people as an ethnic group, or not actually after, but with, was the titling of their lands, of the areas that they had been occupying you know, for decades and decades, as communal territories for Black communities. So this has very concrete consequences. So if we want to understand the Pacific Coast today, if we want to understand the legal basis of that supports Blacks' access to their territory, you have to understand this history, which was what allowed this particular development of the 1990s to happen. And on the other hand, on a very basic level, when you look at, um, and this is kind of moving on to, to the conclusion of the book, when you read books on history of Colombia, you know, th- this history that I'm telling is either absent or or occupies really a second or third place. And it is important when we think about the history of the Americas, when we think about the history of Latin America, and when we think about the history of Colombia, that matters to me a lot, being a Colombian who lives and works in Colombia, to recognize oh that this country has been made by all Colombians, including, of course, Black Colombians and the Black Colombians who live in the Pacific coast. So having a history of their particular trajectories is important to better understand the country that that we
0: have that made. And I agree. It's so important that I really appreciate that I was able to read this book and talk to you about it. And I, I just cannot help to ask, though... A follow up question on this, because I think you also mentioned in the book, and it's, I mean, the tension between studying a society that, as you analyzed and identified, kind of was able to ascertain and defend their freedom on autonomy in a region that, nonetheless, in the last several decades has experienced a lot of violence, drug trafficking, And, you know, more things that I can actually describe here. So can you tell us a little bit about that kind of, it's like a sort of the difficulty of kind of, and you you say that in the book, like romanticizing um, a community that at the same time, communities in plural, right? That are like, that are also experiencing in the present, like really difficult situations.
1: So yes, the the Pacific coast has been a center of both uh, coca cultivation and drug trafficking, precisely because access to the ocean and, um, you know, markets in Mexico were actually routes, drug trafficking routes through Central America and Mexico to the United States. So just at the time where this recognition of Black ethnicity and rights to territory was being enacted, the region was changing very rapidly um, and falling into this turmoil and, and a lot of violence. But even... Even if that had not happened, even at the time that I was studying, uh, I was working in the Pacific Coast, and these trends were just starting in the 1990s. It was still true that some of the rates that, in the end, are showing you how people live, some of the, some of the indicators—I don't know if that's the right word—were were telling you that there was something that was that was not going on well, and that was obvious to anybody. As I was saying, this is one of the poorest regions of the country, and that meant one of the uh, places where uh, most people are illiterate, where infant mortality, and this is perhaps the the, the, the most horrendous um, example, is highest in the country, one of the places where uh, life expectancy is lower, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that really is showing the difficulties that people are experiencing in their, daily, in their daily lives. So how can you reconcile this story that is in a way celebrating the past of Black people as a past where they were able to achieve high levels of autonomy with this uh, reality of uh, poverty? And I think it has to do with part of the argument that I uh, built in part one, saying that paradoxically, the places where people black people were able in the rural areas. The places in the rural areas where black people were able to build or to achieve higher level of autonomies were in places where the economy was weaker, where the economy was more marginal. So if you look at Brazil, for example, the quilombola communities grew and developed in areas that were not the best areas for coffee plantation. Or if you think about places where sugarcane developed. It was in the areas that were hilly, say, in the Oriente region of Cuba, where you have the Sierra Maestra, where it was impossible to grow sugarcane, where you have the strongest peasants communities in Cuba. It was in these places that were marginal to these sugarcane economies, or these plantation economies, or whatever you call them, That because they were marginal, there was less competition and black people were able to create their own lifestyles with higher levels of autonomy. But that usually came associated with poverty. And that poverty became starker throughout the 20th century that, as you know, was a century of the most amazing economic growth in the history of the planet, making the, the divisions or making the, the differences between one group, another group, higher and higher. So Colombia was a very poor society. Peasants were poor everywhere. This starts to change in the 20th century with coffee, where some peasants, the coffee peasants in particular, were faring somewhat better than other groups of peasants. So the fact that autonomy is coupled with marginality and that the 20th century saw such enormous transformation in the way people lived has put black people of the Pacific coast in disadvantage. So the paradox of this story is that the greater autonomy achieved in the 19th and early 20th century has come at the cost of less autonomy in the long run, because when you have less education, when you have worse conditions of living that are seen in lower life expectancy and higher life mortality infant mortality what you're seeing really is less opportunities to decide what you want to do with your life you know people who grow up in the pacific coast because they are less educated for example have lesser chances of achieving certain work positions etc that people in other in other regions so um i think pointing out that this paradox is uh is important to be careful on, of not building um, a romantic story that is kind of detached to the hardships that people experience uh, today and also in the past.
0: Yeah, thank you. And I think you clearly did that in the book and just now with this, with this answer. So just to wrap up, uh, we'd like to finish our interviews by asking, uh, what are you working on right now? What are your plans in the future? What can we, can we expect from you in the next few years? Well, it's a different topic, but
1: it's the um, same kind of approach. What I did in this book was use an environmental approach to understand the transition from slavery to freedom. So the topic in itself is not an environmental topic, but the approach, the analytical toolkit that I use is environmental, to say that paying attention to the environment is important to understanding questions that are fundamental questions in the history of, uh, of Latin America. So now I've moved to understanding state, the state and understanding in particular the territorial state building. If you look at literature on the state, this everybody acknowledges that modern states are territorial, but most of the studies kind of do not pay attention to this aspect of, uh, of what the state is. And I'm looking at that through a history of national parks in Colombia.
0: Yes, and I, I'm kind of familiar with that work because I took a class with you in national parks and so I'm sure it will be a fantastic read and I can't wait to read that next project so thank you very much for joining us today and thank you for an excellent interview
1: well thank you Lisette it's been a pleasure